Okay, this is Illegitimate Scholar Live every weeknight at 8 p.m. I'm, I'm 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Western. I'm, I'm currently in Tennessee right now. I'm, I'm at the Freedom Fest in Memphis, Tennessee, and I'm in my hotel room. Uh, I had a great day today. I met Tulsi Gabbard. I met Ennis Conter, Freedom, Ennis Freedom Conter, however he changed his name to. I met uh, Corey DeAngelis randomly. That was really great. He was so nice. Um, I met Spike Cohen yesterday. I, I'm having a really, really great time here, and it's it's a few more days. I got uh, it's Thursday today. I got two more full days of talks and conferences and everything. So, you know, I'll, I'll, I'm getting ideas. I'm getting a bunch of different material uh, to work with, and I'm excited about what I'm doing. I've also got some announcements coming soon. In the next few weeks, I'm going to be starting another podcast. Um, that's going to be with a few other guys. If you've listened to my stuff a little bit, these are guys that you're, you're probably familiar with. So I, I think people are really going to like what I'm doing and, you know, I'm just getting more into it and I'm, I'm really enjoying doing this live show Thursday night and I'm excited for, for what's coming and I really appreciate everybody who's here. So, um, yeah, but I'm going to get started now. Um, oh, and Anthropology of Religion is going to is going to be starting next Monday. And, and I, uh, what I plan on doing and, you know, what I plan on doing and what actually happens doesn't tend to be very uh, related. But I'm I'm going to be I think I'm going to do two weeks in a row of regular numbered episodes. I'm going to try to do part one and then part two of this Anthropology of Religion. Uh, for the next two weeks, I've just got a, you know, I've got a bunch of research. I've got pages of it. So now it's just kind of organizing that information. Uh, and I'm going to be doing a little bit of that here, a little bit on Sunday when I'm when I'm flying back. And then uh, hopefully I'll, I'll have enough content and how I organize it in the right way. Okay, so the Democratic Party left versus the center. So this was an article that is, it's just, it's on, I thought this was on Substack. It, is it on sub? It is on Substack, but it's not Substack.com. I guess I don't really know how Substack works, but that's okay. Okay, the Democratic Party left versus center. So on Tuesday, John Haplin introduced our new survey project on the important issues and political ideas shaping the 2024 presidential election. He recounted some of the findings from our initial 3,000 voter survey, the first of five we plan to do over the next year or so. So this is from uh, Roy. Tech Syria. It's uh, this is from the American Enterprise Institute, and that is where these are coming from. So they asked a number of questions, and these basically demonstrate how out of touch the Democratic Party is, which is to say, uh, very out of touch. So let, let's get into this. So, okay. So there were three options here. They had three options of questions that they asked about immigration. So number one is people around the world have the right to claim asylum and America should welcome more immigrants into the country. Number two, and so one is the most open immigration policy. Number two is a moderate policy. America needs to secure its borders and create more legal and managed immigration paths to bring in skilled professionals and workers to help our economy grow. It's the moderate path. That's generally the one that I would go with myself personally. And then number three, America needs to close its borders to outsiders and reduce all levels of immigration. So number one is all essentially open immigration. Number two is 
uh, legal skilled immigration, and number three is closed immigration. And, and what we see is 24% are choosing the most open option, the right to asylum and admitting more immigrants. And that in, is associated with the Democratic Party, and I would say fairly associated with the Democratic Party. The most popular was the second one at 59%. So the moderate option, which lets in legal and skilled immigrants, was 59% favored. And then the draconian option, as it's described here, is that they are closed off uh, to, to all immigrants, including, or most immigrants, including uh, skilled immigrants. And that's at 17%. So yeah, so three to one for the moderate and draconian put together against that 24%. So uh, that is, th this is demonstrating, this is the first one that demonstrates that the Democratic Party is very much out of touch with regular people. And, and you know that these hands are E for everybody. So I don't just attack the Democrats, I'm going to attack everybody. But I, I think that in general, in, in cultural situations, in, in cultural issues, the Democratic Party tends to be uh, way too far to what could be called on the left. Okay, so climate and energy, three options here. Again, number one is the most extreme in the direction of uh, the, the what would be considered the left. So that's we need a number one is we need a rapid green transition to end the use of fossil fuels and replace them with fully renewable energy sources. Number two, this is the moderate option. Number one is the extreme left position. We need an all of the above strategy that provides abundant and cheap energy from multiple sources, including oil and gas to renewables to advanced nuclear power. So two, that's the moderate position. It's energy from oil, gas, renewables, so solar, wind, and nuclear power. And then number three is stop any sort of attempt to replace the fossil fuels and uh, don't undercut jobs and don't raise costs. So three is extreme to the right, one is extreme to the left, two is moderate. And the, the majority of people, well, not even the majority actually. So number two, the moderate one is 46%. Again, that's the one I'm in. Um, and then number three is 25% with one, the number one option, the most extreme taking 29%. So once again, this this, this push to full renewables is, um, is the democratic option. And that is one that's not favored. And, and to be honest, when you look at these, and this is true of number two, or of the first question as well, is that while the most extreme left option is associated with the Democratic Party, it's actually the Republican Party that is associated with the moderate option rather than the extreme right. The Republican Party broadly is not trying to end immigration. They are trying to keep with skilled immigration, and I think they're right on that. They're also not trying to um, they're not trying to get rid of um, renewables. They're trying to have a, a, a multi approach that that takes other considerations. So that's number two. So that's 46% want that second option. So let's see. Uh, okay, so transgender controversies. So the one, number one, the associated with the left wing, the most extreme option is states should protect all transgender youth 
by providing access to puberty blockers and transition surgeries if desired and allowing them to participate fully in all activities and sports as the gender of their choice. So number one is the left-wing option that is that is kids, that is children getting puberty blockers, surgeries, and being in the sports of their choice, uh, the effective death of women's sports. Number two, the moderate option is protect the rights of transgender adults to live as they want, but implement stronger regulations on puberty blockers, transition surgeries, and sports participation for transgender minors. And number three, this is the extreme right option in, in this case, is states should ban all gender transition treatments for minors and stop discussion of, of gender ideology in all public schools. Um, hmm. Yeah, I mean, I'm I, I'm probably between two and three here because I don't I don't think that kids should be taking the drugs, but I I would say probably closer to two than three. I don't know. There there needs to be a little bit of um understanding here okay so number one sorry one second um so number one this is gender affirming care that's the default position of the of the democratic party and 26 percent of voters endorse this position so 26% of voters want this extreme number one position. And, and this article, it correctly says that uh, they want that anything besides number one is going to be considered extreme by the Democratic Party. They're going to call you a bigot, a transphobe, whatever. So, but... The, the truth is that 41% of voters want that second option, and then a third of voters want that third option. So 33%, 41%, like we're looking at the majority of voters are, are in that two to three range, and, and only about a quarter are with that number one. And Doug says in the thing that he's with three on the on the trans one. You know, I mean, the thing is, it's, it's the kids for me. It's the kids. It's the kids and the sports. The sports, it's just, it doesn't make sense human beings you guys know how i feel about this we are human beings we're mammals we're sexually dimorphic it doesn't make sense for sports um yeah so and then number two so i'm with number two i'm with the moderate here they should protect the rights um okay is there any more here so uh, the point of this is that uh, number one the <laughs> The positions that the Democratic Party holds are extreme in these specific cases, and I, I think in, in more cases than not. And I think for a few years, I mean, I live in Connecticut, so I see this quite a lot. People really, really buy in to what I would call these extreme positions that don't really have a lot of nuance to them at all. So it, it's this is showing how out of touch the democratic establishment is with the electorate in general of theirs and also are um as well as like the electorate in general okay so i'm going to move on to the next one but okay so right here we have this ridiculous thing this is from the new york times 
And I, I picked this one out because I thought how ridiculous this article was written. So Arizona man cited in conspiracy theories sues Fox News for defamation. So Ray Epps, described here by the New York Times as a two-time Trump voter, says Tucker Carlson repeatedly and falsely named him as a covert government agent who incited the January 6th attack. Look, I mean, you can Google this guy. He's he's glowing as hell. I mean, this guy is is the idea that New York Times is trying to push this as a conspiracy theory that that he's a, a federal agent. I mean, th- this guy was caught on video several times pushing people to go into the Capitol, even the day before. And he's 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 claiming in this New York Times article, they're they're claiming that he's it's a conspiracy theory that this guy was pushing people to go into the Capitol, but he's on video saying we got to go into the Capitol and people around him are like, no, no, no. And I'm not going to show those videos here. If you'd like to look into it, if you don't already know about this, please, once this is over or even right now, go ahead and Google Ray Epps. I mean, I don't know if he's a fed or not, but he definitely was somebody who was pushing people to go into the Capitol. He's on video multiple times doing it the day before and the day of. And yet they're pretending like he didn't do that. A widespread So Ray Epps, this is what the article says, Ray Epps, a name everybody in the Libertarian Party knows, and every uh, most Republicans should know this as well, Ray Epps, the man at the center of a widespread conspiracy theory about the attack on the Capitol on January 6, 2021. It's really uh, weird you call it an attack when people are walking in single file lines and being escorted by police like the QAnon shaman was. Um, (laughs) But they say here, filed a lawsuit on Wednesday accusing Fox News and its former host, Tucker Carlson, of defamation for promoting a fantastical story that Mr. Epps was an undercover government agent who instigated the violence of the Capitol as a way to disparage President Donald J. Trump and his supporters. Um, And he's suing them for $787.5 million. No. The complaint was filed in Superior Court in Delaware, where Fox recently agreed to a $787.5 million settlement against Dominion Voting Systems. I have my own beliefs about that, but regardless, um, just as Fox has focused on voting machine companies when falsely claiming a rigged election, Fox knew it needed a scapegoat for January 6th, the complaint says. It settled on Ray Epps and began promoting the lie that Ray Epps was a federal agent who incited the new the attack on the Capitol. I mean, guys, I, I, after the unfounded accusations about Mr. Epps were aired on Mr. Carlson's show, they quickly spread to online communities of Trump supporters. This guy's on video. I mean, he's on video saying this. Why are anybody who Googles this could. Oh, my God, man. And apparently his wife received numerous death threats and were forced to sell their five acre ranch and wedding business in Arizona and move into a 350 square foot mobile home parked at a remote trailer park. Dude, uh, come on. I mean, this guy was caught on video doing all of this stuff. He was caught on video telling people, we need to go into the Capitol. Other people telling him no. Um, Dude, he, this guy, 
did this. I mean, he, I don't want to say he did it, but like, he's on video. You Google it, he's on video. It's ridiculous to claim that this is a conspiracy theory that he was involved. He was involved. It's completely on video. Um, and Craig's right. Everyone is so happy trying to get money. I mean, I'm I'm with you, but it's it's also a way for people to just... If I thought I could get $787 million from suing someone on some nonsense, then I would do it. Um, and that's unfortunately the, the way it works in America. They're able to, to silence people and make people scared to speak out because they're worried about being attacked by these massive lawsuits, like the one that hit Alex Jones, where he was sued for billions of dollars. Um, yeah. It, it, God, I, I hate it. I hate it. I'm going to move on. Okay, this one's from Gallup. This is from from recent. This is an article from Gallup that includes some statistics. So Americans' confidence in higher education is down sharply. So higher education—that's our universities. And what I'm showing here is there is some data from 2015 to 2013, and and what we see is that there is a massive decline in the share of Americans who believe in higher education. So in 2015. It was uh, either so in 2015, 57% of Americans had either a great deal or quite a lot. So these are the two positive options in their confidence in higher education 57%. Eight years later, we are in 2023, the current year, and that number has dropped from 57% to 36 percent so almost only one-third of americans have positive confidence in higher education and this is due to a number of reasons i mean i'm, I'm the same way mine shifted from probably 2015 quite a lot to 2023 i would say i'm in that very little and it's it shows how people are responding to, I mean, you can say whatever you want about, and obviously you guys, the people listening to this, you guys are not going to be claiming probably that higher education is like actually what they claim to be. They're not actually this, this great and powerful arbiters of knowledge that are just committed to the truth. I mean, it's just nonsense to call them that. But statistics right here show that the average American, average Americans are, are largely agreeing with that and they have their support and their belief and confidence in higher education has declined sharply as it said and you know down to 37%. I mean 62% of of Americans have either some or very little confidence in higher education in 2023 and that is up a lot from before. So it's declined across the board. It's declined with Republicans, it's declined with independents, and it's even declined with Democrats. It's declined less with Democrats. But I mean, you've got Republicans, 2015 to 2023, the sharpest decline from 56% confidence to 19% confidence. Independents, it goes from 48% to 32. And Democrats, from 68% to 59%. And when you break it down by college degrees, by, by what degree you have, in 2015, this one is very telling, people with no college degrees, and this has a lot to do with massive overlap with uh, Republicans, but uh, Americans with no college degrees, in 2015, they, they had 54% of them had confidence. 
Whereas now in 2023, we're at 29%. Uh, with college degrees, and this is the one that's really important to me. Those with college degrees in 2015 were 57% confident in higher education. But in 2023, the average American with a college degree is, or Americans with college degrees are at an average of 47% extremely low under 50%. So Americans with college degrees are uh, the majority of them do not have either quite a lot or a great deal of confidence in higher education. Um, and even in the 18 to 34 range, we see that today, while it was 60% in 2015, we're now at 42%. So we're at a very low percentage of people who are confident in higher education. And this is reduced. And, and, you know, this is a problem because our universities in, in the United States used to be huge. I mean, they used to be considered the best in the world. They used to produce the best scientists in the world. They used to produce like every they used to produce people that then went on to produce things. They, they went to produce amazing things that made this country what it is. And now we're seeing people lose confidence in higher education Likely, I mean, I, I can only speculate, but I think it's very fair to say that a lot of this has to do with the just uh, the policies, the the ridiculous out of touch policies and beliefs that people in charge of higher education have. They're completely out of touch. I mean, anybody who spent some time on a college campus within the last five to 10 years knows how out of touch these people are. Um, yeah, feel free to say something if you want me to slow down, but I'm going to, I'm going to go to the next article. Um, okay. So <laughs> this one is funny. Okay. The article is from Newsweek. Indigenous chief wants to take back Ben and Jerry's HQ built on stolen land. So an indigenous tribe descended from the Native American nation that originally controlled the land in Vermont, the Ben and Jerry's headquarters is located on, would be interested in taking it back. The chief has said, I, I don't I, I, I don't know why they're saying indigenous chief. I, I don't. This is it's a, I don't know about them using the term chief in uh, Algonquin Native Americans. Abenaki, are they Algonquin? But uh, look, the. <laughs> The point is, the company has publicly called for stolen lands to be returned, okay? So Ben and Jerry's suggests returning stolen indigenous land in July 4th message. So uh, this is ridiculous. But what Ben and Jerry's clearly conveniently forgot is that they are also on indigenous land. And uh, Don Stevens great name for a chief of the Nulhegan band of the Kusuk Abenaki nation, one of four descended from the Abenaki that are recognized in Vermont. So there are four recognized, uh, it's either four recognized bands or four recognized tribes. Those are different things, but it's, he's one of, one of four descended from the Abenaki that are recognized in Vermont. It's always interested in reclaiming the stewardship of our lands, but that the company has yet to approach them. So, I mean, this company goes on Twitter and they say, oh, let's give back stolen land. And then, and then the Native American guy is like, hey, okay, let's have our land back then. Your headquarters is on our land and you said it was stolen. Um, so they don't, but they're not going to give it back. 
They're not. They're not going to give it back. It's 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 BS lip service. The U.S. was founded on stolen indigenous land. The company said in a statement ahead of Independence Day this year. Let's commit to returning it. Okay, nut up and shut up, Ben and Jerry's. Put your money where your mouth is. I mean, I I'm not somebody who believes in returning stolen indigenous land like i i'm somebody i am very much in favor as you guys know on uh the rights of contemporary native americans but at the same time it, it's not really stolen i mean it was conquered is what happened it's it's that's the way land works and you know that doesn't mean that i think native americans should be treated poorly today i think they don't get treated well enough but if you're if you as a company are going to come out and you're going to say like oh this land is stolen we need to return this land and you're going to talk about that that problem then that puts you in a position where you're admitting that you have stolen this land then give it back i i mean and if you don't give it back that's a reasonable thing to do because it's ridiculous to give land back like it it's just it's nonsense it, everyone knows it's it's a virtue signaling type thing, but then just don't say it's stolen. Because if it's stolen, then you should give it back. If it's stolen, then a crime has been committed, and you are not the rightful owner of it. And if you're not the rightful owner of it, and you're you yourself are claiming you're not the rightful owner of the land, then what are you doing? Why why are you on the land? Why are you even saying this? You'd be better off saying nothing. You really would. It it, it doesn't make any sense to me. I, am I crazy here? Craig. Oh my God. So Craig says, unfortunately, the Native Americans had a terrible immigration policy. Yeah, they were letting anybody in. They were letting out. They were letting the worst people in. They weren't sending their best. The white settlers, they were. They weren't sending their best. They were sending <laughs> rapists and warriors and whatever. Yeah. Um. So. Uh, yeah, dude. It's it's. What are you supposed to say if you're Ben and Jerry's? Why are you saying something like this? They didn't have border patrol. Oh my god. <laughs> oh, you guys are cracking me up. Yeah, no, they must. They, their border patrol wasn't that good. It wasn't that good at all. Um, maybe they should have. Uh, maybe they should have built a wall. Um. <laughs> so it says. Maps show that the Abenaki, a confederacy of several tribes who united against enroachment, encroachment from a rival tribal confederacy, controlled an area that stretched from the northern border of Massachusetts in the south to New Brunswick, Canada in the north, and from the St. Lawrence River in the west to the east coast. So this would put Ben and Jerry's headquarters located in a business park in southern Burlington within the western portion of this historic territory, though it does not sit in any modern-day tribal lands. Yeah, because the land was conquered and taken by the whites. That's what happened. Sorry, Ben and Jerry's. You bought it from someone else who had bought it from someone else who had bought it from someone else who had taken it from Native Americans. And if you think that means it's stolen, then shut your shitty, dumb, hippie, virtue-signaling BS headquarters down, stop selling your dumbass ice cream, go retire, and give your land back to the Native Americans. And if you're not going to do that, shut up and stop pretending that you're anything other than a garbage ice cream company that makes stupid flavors with neoliberal shit politicians on them, and just, and just start making ice cream. Just give it up. Give it the fuck up. Um, 
Yeah, this stuff pisses me off, man. Look, if you're just going to own it, if you're just going to say, look, yeah, that stuff was bad, it shouldn't have happened, maybe donate some money, maybe talk about contemporary Native American issues like I do. But all these people do. They just provide lip service. They say, oh, my God, the land was stolen. And then they do nothing. They do nothing. And it's, it's ridiculous. Uh, ben and Jerry's has not yet publicly responded to calls to return the land its headquarters is situated on. Newsweek contacted the company via email for contact on f- for comments on Friday. This article came out on 7-7. I mean, was that, the, was that the Friday before, or did they release this article the same day they contacted them? Because if it's the same day, that's not really enough time. But regardless. Um, okay. The tribe has not been approached in regards to any land back opportunities from Ben and Jerry's. If and when we are approached, many conversations and discussions will need to take place to determine the best path forward for all involved. Yeah, don't don't hold your breath, bro. They're not giving you shit back. They don't care about you. They care about signaling their virtue to other New England neoliberal white people who also have no interest in doing anything for you. And he knows that. He knows that. I mean, it's just it's just optics. And I, I, I commend him for doing that. Um, but the, I mean, this is this is nonsense. This is nonsense. OK, next one. Next one. We're on to the Al Jazeera articles. Hollywood actors to join screenwriters in strike over wages and A.I., The strike is the first joint action between actors and writers in 60 years, bringing major studio projects to a standstill. Now, look, they they can talk about AI. They can talk about AI all they want. I'm sure that that is something that is harming these writers. But at the same time, Hollywood is dying. And it's not dying because of AI. Hollywood is dying because they're producing crap. And they're producing it. They're completely out of touch with mainstream America. They have they, they don't even pretend to be in favor of the South or middle America. They produce things for a extreme subsection of the American population. They produce crap, woke garbage. They, they only make they, they make remakes of remakes and they and they produce crap. And then the writers in this thing are, are they I. I I'm with them, okay? I I know that they're being treated poorly by these people, but they have no leverage. In the face of AI and in the face of all this other content, the other thing, like, you guys are watching me on YouTube. I'm just some guy with a podcast. I don't have any sort of traditional uh, training. You know, I make videos and I make make podcasts. And this is what people want to watch more. The most popular show in the world is not on TV. It's Joe Rogan's podcast. That's the most popular show in the world. So uh, when you're in that situation and then also you get this AI thing, which maybe takes 20% off of your bargaining power, you're just you're screwed. You got to go do something independent. It's Hollywood's done. It's an industry that is only surviving based on its its past performance and the momentum that it has. But it's 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 going to lose. I mean, the entire industry is going to come down. And I feel for the writers who are probably the most abused of all these people, but that doesn't mean that it's not like, it, it doesn't mean they there's anything that they can do. Because ultimately, if you don't have bargaining power for a number of reasons, and in this situation, I really don't feel they have bargaining power, then you, you can't, you can't 
push back. You really can't. And writers and actors are demanding job protection against artificial intelligence, as well as an, in, as well as an increase in base pay and residuals from streaming services. Uh, it's uh, You guys are screwing yourselves. You're screwing yourselves because there's already uh, people already don't like the streaming services. They already don't like this traditional media. And then you're shutting down your operations when you have, as writers, no bargaining power because you can't stop AI. AI is here. Like you might as well be taxis trying to stop Uber. It's here. It's happening. You can try to push it off as long as you can, but it's happening. You got to adjust to the circumstances. I mean, if I were a writer in Hollywood, I would move, go somewhere else. I would find a job, like go work for Mr. Beast. You probably won't because you don't have the right, like he, he won't take you because you don't have any real skills. You don't really produce good things. And look, I'm, I'm always on the side of workers. I'm always on the side of the union workers, but you got to be realistic. This doesn't, this is, you don't have any bargaining power. Craig says here, as a union person, you strike when the profits are high and the company needs you. Yeah. That's what you do. You got to strike when the profits are high. Like if you don't, if you're producing a lot, if you as a worker are producing a lot for the company and you are not getting close to your fair share, then that's one thing. And that's a time when the union should work together. And, and I support the use of unions for people to be able to organize when they, as individual workers, they don't have any power, but as a conglomerate, a collection of workers, they have power together. And that's great. But the writers together, I mean, people have other options. Everybody has other options. Not only do regular people who watch these programs have other options, but the Hollywood producers have other options. Um, it's going to bring all current productions to a screeching halt. No future productions will get started until this is settled. I mean, whatever, man. Watch YouTube. It's great for me. Come over here. I'm not in a writer's union. I'm just out here making crap for YouTube and ranting on my podcast um and people seem to like it um okay that means that if for example a movie set is underway with actors playing their roles somewhere in the world they have to stop and walk off the set so it's going to really bring everything to a screeching halt almost immediately so i i mean i don't know with the actors it's somewhat different right because the actors probably have more leverage than the writers um Disney CEO Bob Iger says that the workers' demands were very disturbing and that the strike would be harmful and disruptive. I mean, it being disruptive is the point. It's supposed to be disruptive. It's a strike. That's the point. That's that's how you get stuff done. But for it to be disruptive and effective, you have to have leverage. And again, they don't. Um, yeah. It, it, <laughs> Iger's comments were panned on social media where critics pointed out that the CEO earns about 27 million dollars per year through his salary and stock incentives and yeah i mean i mean i'm not gonna say that's not bs but like it doesn't mean that there aren't too many writers that there isn't not enough work that there aren't enough alternative forms of entertainment that are rising while while hollywood is falling like if these writers wanted to to make more money i mean i think that they should just work on projects that are better i guess yeah, so actors say that many everyday entertainment workers struggle to earn enough to get by despite the industry's association with glamour and fame. I mean, these people are going to Hollywood to try to 
to try to like make it in this crazy world where they want to be Tom Cruise and they want to be a freaking Scientologist and and make millions of dollars and then they just keep trying to make that work and like why would you do that? Why like just it's not like just because there's so many people like the reason the wages are low is because there are so many people who regardless of the low pay they still want to get into this work because of the the perception of it and like that's just you just got to go somewhere else like unions are great in certain situations and i don't want to be the guy that's being anti-union but like you do not have leverage unions only work when as a collective the workers have leverage but even as a collective they don't have leverage. And I, you know, I'm beating a dead horse here, but that is, that is what's happening. And I don't know where this is going to end, but it's just going to accelerate the death of Hollywood, which is a, it's just done. Like what are, they don't, they're not producing anything new. They're not, this isn't the nineties. It's not the two thousands. They're not making amazing blockbuster movies that are cultural hits that are loved by the majority of the population. They're making garbage for East and West Coast elites. They shit on most Americans and people are tired of it and they're not making anything new. You writers, you, you want extra money because you you wrote the live action version of Moana. What are you writing? Moana was already based on freaking Polynesian folklore. It was already based. It was already a remake, essentially. And then you're, you're remaking it in like modern form. Uh, yeah, 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 ridiculous. Okay, so keeping with the theme, we're gonna get in. We're gonna, we're gonna talk about the Palestinians a little bit. Okay, so what Palestinians in Janine camp did to block the Israeli border, Israeli army? So what we talked about recently was the Palestinian Palestinian Authority the last few weeks being unable to stop these settler attacks as well as Israeli army attacks on uh, Palestinian villages, Palestinian towns and cities. So now um, Palestinians, other Palestinians, besides those associated with the Palestinian Authority, they are making handmade anti-tank barriers. They're using improvised explosives. And the people in the Janine camp are trying new ways to slow Israel's raids. So in the occupied West Bank, hours after Israeli forces withdrew from the Janine refugee camp, one of its main entrances had already been been enforced with obstacles and explosives in anticipation of another Israeli attack. So unsurprisingly, when a foreign, and some people would argue it's not foreign, but it's it's clearly foreign, uh, power attacks into your land and then... You're like, all right, we've had enough of this. We're going to put up a barrier and we're going to fight back. This is foreseeable. Unfortunately, this is going to be used as an excuse to just attack them more. I mean, it's a no-win. Um, large anti-tank metal barriers, improvised explosive canisters, and two parked cars blocked the entrance into the cab, which was still reeling from a three-day Israeli air and ground assault that began on July 2nd. They're attacking a refugee camp. Um, the largest raid on the densely populated camp since 2002, Israel pounded it with explosive drones and missiles fire, fired from unmanned planes while hundreds of soldiers raided the camp, taking cover in people's homes and spreading destruction for about 48 hours. Twelve Palestinians, including three children, were killed. This is one that we talked about recently. So 
120 Palestinians injured, dozens in critical condition, 3,000 residents forced to flee their homes. Keep in mind, these are they're fleeing their homes in the refugee camp. So they're already in a refugee camp and they're fleeing. This is like inception level shit. Um, Palestinian fighters were witnessed firing back at Israeli soldiers. Uh, but fighters and camp residents are increasingly relying on new tactics to defend themselves against repeated deadly Israeli attacks. So, I mean, God, I mean, it's, it's violence that I don't want to see happening, but it's expected. That's so they, yeah, it's, it's, uh, look, I mean, I'm not, God. So right now what's happening, the new Palestinian resistance groups in the occupied West Grand, West Camp, West Bank. So like, because the Palestinian authority, the, the official government is not protecting the people there are now these new groups showing up. And what will inevitably happen, likely, is that these groups will attack Israeli troops and Israeli civilians, unfortunately, that are that are fighting against them. And they're um, and then they're going to be attacked in response. And it's just a it's just a, it's violent. It's a feedback loop of violence on all sides. So they're talking here about how the army couldn't enter the camp. So they just bombed it. Um, yeah. Watch their funeral processions and you will see how much support there is for these fighters. Yeah. And Craig uh, attacking a refugee camp. So sad. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's awful. It's awful. Obviously it's a very complicated situation, but ultimately I, I view Israel as more responsible for this type of violence because of, the position that they have as uh, being the much more powerful force in this situation. Um, okay. Nations where 3.3 billion live spend more on debt than health and schools. So that's about half of humanity. So almost half of humanity lives in countries that spend more servicing interest on debt than health or education, the UN says. So approximately 3.3 billion people, they are living in countries that are spending more on just paying the interest on their debt. So half of our world is sinking into a development disaster fueled by a crushing debt crisis. And I mean, this is foreseeable. This is something that organizations like the International Monetary Fund and other uh, NGOs, other international organizations that they they have loaned a lot of money to these places in order uh, ostensibly for them to create assets um, and for them to build up their country. But at this point, they've taken all these loans out, these loans that have interest. And unfortunately, there hasn't been a uh, an increase at enough of them in their GDPs for them to turn to to pay off these loans. So this money did not do what it was supposed to. And now they're in a situation where this is what was originally meant to help them is actually hindering them, especially because when these donations, when, when these, uh, when the loans came in originally, I mean, these are, these are being taken a lot of the times by corrupt officials and it 
doesn't go to the people that need it, and yet still somehow we end up in a situation where um, where these countries are under debt. It, it's it's awful. It's awful. And you know this is a topic that I would have to get way into. I mean I could do multiple episodes on this, but I mean this is what this is what's happening. It's not just in America that has a massive amount of debt that harms the country and its uh, and its progress. I mean, think this is a country, right? But you can think about this in your own life. If you or someone you know has an extreme amount of debt, they have an overabundance of debt that they have to spend money every month. I'm sure like if you are if you have not experienced this personally, you definitely know someone who has. If you are paying money to service debt, you cannot it's very hard to get above water on that. It's very hard to, to pay that down. You have to reduce your expenses a lot in order to do that. And that's not what these countries had intended on doing originally. But these countries aren't like individuals in, in that like certain people can take out these loans. They can misappropriate those funds. And then the country itself is still required to pay that money back. And then the normal people are expected to pay that off. So, yeah. Awful. Um, this thing. Okay. University of Chicago student, and this is from Fox News, University of Chicago student called a bully by media says they are scared of conservatives speaking out. Um, a course entitled The Problem of Whiteness drew controversy last year after student Daniel Schmidt shared it on his social media. So this is a ridiculous situation that's happening, and I really commend this student. So a conservative student who faced media attacks after exposing a course called The Problem of Whiteness at his school said the blowback shows the left doesn't really expect conservatives to push back. So if you're a conservative, shut up, obey, don't say anything, Daniel Schmidt told Fox News General uh, Digital. And the incoming junior at the University of Chicago and self-described activist said that the controversy began after he stumbled across the class while browsing the upcoming semester's catalog last fall and it just stood out to me can you imagine if there was a class called the problem of blackness or the problem of jewishness everyone would be talking about it and what really stands out to me is that this kid he he drew attention to this course by just talking about it on the internet he just brought it out in the lecturer dr rebecca journey and journey this uh doctor she is a doctor Oh, I'm sorry. I shouldn't have assumed her pronouns. It's possible that she identifies as some sort of cantaloupe or something. So I won't say she. But uh, Rebecca, uh, Rebecca Journey filed two complaints about the sophomore to school administration. The New York Times reported last week. This is a lecturer at an Ivy League school, the University of Chicago. And this freaking person is filing complaints about a sophomore in college to the school administration a 19 or 20 year old kid i mean what the hell is wrong with you why would you do like you think that he's the bully because he has a problem with your course he's allowed to have a problem with your course this is nonsense it's absolute nonsense journey went to media to air her complaints after the school administration said schmidt's actions were protected under the university's policy of free expression you're allowed to have a problem with the class Rebecca, you can have a problem with your dumb class. 
Maybe if so many people have a problem with it, it says something more about you than it does about Daniel Schmidt, the 20-year-old that you're describing as a bully, even though you're the one that's bullying a freaking teenager. It's ridiculous. Um, the instructor attacked the school for excusing white rage, misogyny, and anti-Semitism. All right, if that's white rage, misogyny, and anti-Semitism, you can call me white rage, misogynistic, and anti-Semitic. Go ahead. I don't care. I'll be that. And claimed Schmidt's tweets could inspire an armed white nationalist to shoot up her classroom. Are you out of your mind? You have an you have a class, and then this kid goes on the internet and he shares, "Hey, this class is dumb. This is BS." And just because somebody brought attention to the class that you're doing, just the honest approach of it, you're then going to claim that this could inspire somebody to shoot up your classroom. This is nonsense. And then this woman tries to get him expelled twice, twice. And he's the bully. He is the bully. He's a college student trying to learn things, taking to the internet because he has no support. Well, he has a little bit of support. I commend the university for not buying into any of this BS. I mean, it's a really low bar, but I have to commend them on it. Um, okay, so in all seriousness, this is a tweet from Daniel Schmidt, the real Schmidt. In all seriousness, the worst people in society are furious. A white college kid actually stands up for white people and is effective. So now both the New York Times, oops, so now both the New York Times and CNN describe me as some dangerous cyber terrorist. So, oh my God, I have, a sh I just clicked on Twitter. I was on there 30 minutes ago and now I have 20 plus notifications. I have no idea what that is. Um, and yeah, so New York Times at UChicago, a debate over free speech and cyberbullying. A student objected to a class, the problem of whiteness and tweeted the lecturer's photo and email address. Hate mail poured in. What should the school do? Nothing. Nothing. They should do nothing. At the University of Chicago, you are a professor at a college. Your name and email address are public. This is a thing. Just because a kid decided to make it known to the greater public that you are producing a class that's hate-filled nonsense does not mean that it's his fault that he shared your lecturer's photo and email address. It's on the website. Any college website has the email address and photos of their staff. If they don't have emails and photos of their staff, then they're probably not a real college and you should check that out. That's This is nothing. If this is public information, he didn't dox anybody. This information is just there. And that's from the New York Times. And then we have a CNN opinion. Um, opinion, when free speech becomes a bully's free pass. Free speech becoming a bully's free pass is CNN's business model. This is what CNN and the New York Times do in general. They, they attack people like literal children. Um, yeah. Gosh, and then you have this picture of these stupid white college kids. One of them has a sign that says, how does it feel to know your existence is a problem? Um, if you think my existence is a problem, I don't respect you and I don't care what you think. My existence is not a problem. I'm just here trying to exist, just like Daniel Schmidt, trying to go to college, trying to be left alone. Uh I, I can't tell if they're on the side of Daniel, actually. I mean, this kid's got a longboard and 
hair. Um, yeah, Craig. People are so oh, are so sensitive, can't take any criticism. Yes. And they're used to just being able to not have people disagree with them. And then, um, yeah, dang white people. Yeah, it's always, it's the whites. It's causing the problem. Schmidt argues the media's overreaction to his activism is hypocritical because the press doesn't seem to care when liberal students try to dox professors and ruin lives. And that's something that's happened for a long time. They're totally shocked when a conservative male, white male speaks up. I mean, you know, let's be honest, Black Lives Matter activists, they try to cancel professors all the time. They try to dox students. They try to ruin lives. I mean, this happens on a regular basis. And there's a, a citation here. Uh, college allegedly fired biology professor for teaching sex was determined by chromosomes X and Y. Yeah. But when a conservative student does it, that's totally the end of the world. And that, I mean, that's my experience as well. They treat it like it's literal. They treat it like you're shooting them in the face. It's, it's absolutely insane. Um, Schmidt believes these hit pieces show liberal media outlets are a little scared of how effective the conservative minority on college campuses can be. Um, I mean, it sucks that they have to go outside of the campus to get support. Because the people on college campuses, especially in Ivy League like the University of Chicago, are so downright ridiculous that they are um, that they are like it, it lost my train of thought midward. The heck was I just saying? Oh yeah, conservative students, anybody who's not neoliberal is not going to have support on campus. They're just not. So you have to go outside the campus. And I commend him on I wish I had done more of this when I, uh, I did. Okay. White people. It's the white people promise. Um, Kamala Harris's popularity at historic lows because she talks to people like children, says Mark Thiessen. I think there's a lot of reasons why Harris is, uh, why Harris is not popular. She's just very unlikable. She is. Um, but this person thinks, why is she so unpopular? One, oh, yeah. One may be that none of the issues she's taken on, like the border or anything else, she hasn't made any progress. And so part of that is the failure of the administration. But the other thing is that she has this habit of talking about the most mundane mundane things in this deeply profound voice and when people hear that when people hear her say transportation is about getting people to the place they want to go and say it in such a profound way they think one or two things either they think she's stupid or they think she thinks i'm stupid i know that kamala harris does not think of herself as stupid so yeah i i kind of think that she thinks we're stupid but people don't like to be talked to like a child and so either they just lose confidence in her or they think she's talking down to them and that makes her profoundly unpopular and i i think part of this is that like she's probably trying to take this from uh, the book of donald trump which is donald trump famously was like neil neoliberals love to talk about how donald trump talks at like a fourth grade level or whatever but donald trump yeah he talks in very simple ways so that like all americans can understand what he's saying because there's a range of different, you know, levels of understanding. But when Donald Trump does it, you know, he's just kind of being himself. He's just kind of talking, you know, he's he's being genuine. But when Kamala Harris does it, it just seems like she she sounds like she thinks that she's like a Buddhist monk. And she's out here talking about uh, the most interesting things, but she's 
saying them in simple ways, probably because she's been told that she's supposed to do that. Um, NBC News on Monday reported that Vice President Harris has the dubious distinction of having the lowest net negative rating of modern vice presidents in the history of their polling. 32% of registered vote voters have a positive view of Harris compared to 49% with a negative view, including 39% with a very negative view. Oh my God. It's so bad. I mean, it's nobody likes her. I've never met anyone who, who really likes her. I mean, I have, but they're, you know, neoliberal white women. Um, you know, she was, she was a weird diversity hire, a really weird diversity hire. Um, Craig says, Kabbalah Harris, Kabbalah Harris. <laughs> Jesus, Craig, you're on fire tonight with what you're saying. Kabbalah Harris wasn't liked by the Dems. She was single digits after Tulsi roast, roasted her in the debate. Not likable. Yes, that is what happened. Tulsi roasted her in the, the debate. She tried to attack Biden, called him racist, talked about his sexual assault. And then when called out on it after she accepted his VP position, she took the mask out off and just said, oh, it was a debate. Yeah, so what? You're telling us that it's all a fancy show and it's all nonsense? I mean, like, yeah, thanks. Thanks for thanks for admitting that. Thanks for admitting that. But yeah, she is not likable. She was in the single digits. She she has no business taking the VP spot. It, it really more so than any other public figure I can think of. She was really a diversity hire and not a good one. In the last article, seeing slow pace of campaign, top Democrats prepping in quiet to replace Biden. So uh, these are both things that I talked about today. I was talking earlier today. I, I, I got the pleasure of meeting uh, Tulsi Gabbard today. Uh, that was awesome. Um, and I was also talking to a guy that I just met who I hopefully will be doing some stuff with soon about what Tulsi had done to Kamala Harris and how she had just shut down her campaign. It was awesome. It was absolutely terrific. Um, but, uh, excuse me. According to a new CNN report, a growing number of top Democrats and donors are reaching out to potential um, are reaching out to potential replacements for President Biden as the 2024 Democratic Democrat presidential nominee. And this is something that I was talking about today because it does seem like they are being that they are being turned on that um, that Democrats are turning on Biden. The Democratic establishment, rather, is turning on Biden. Uh, and this is going to be the last article. So if you want to ask any questions, please ask them below and I'll answer them when I'm done with this. And uh, yes, I, I met Tulsi Gabbard today. She she looked amazing, of course. Um, OK, and she is amazing. And I, I called her Colonel. It's uh, <laughs> great. OK. So the conversations keep happening. Quiet whispers on the sidelines of events, texts, emails, furtive phone calls as top Democrats and donors reach out to those seat as possible replacement presidential candidates. I, I think the problem is that there really isn't a replacement presidential candidate. You know, they ran Hillary Clinton in 2016. They ran Biden in 2020. Neither of them were the choice of the lower Democrats, and they don't really have any real candidates anymore. I mean, I don't, they can try to run Biden again. He's clearly very old. Um, and they can, 
try to run Kamala Harris, but like we just saw, she's the least popular vice president ever, so that's not really going to work. So I, I, I'm kind of giving 2024 up to the Republicans. I think it's kind of up to who they're going to put up. But it's... It's... I, I don't know. They're, if they had another option, I don't think... I, I think they'd already have that option out there in person. I, they'd have that that other presidential candidate out there making headway as we speak, even if Biden didn't come out already and say, I'm not going to run again. But they don't. They don't have anybody. They got nobody. I mean, name somebody. You got Gavin Newsom. I mean, that might be it. That might be who they run. But I'm never going to vote for that guy. I would never vote for him. He's terrible. I'll vote for anybody else. Anybody else. Um, so, I mean, you can think that's going to work. Uh, you can, again, you can try to run Kamala Harris. Uh, is it RFK? I mean, I, I would take RFK from what I know about him, but I don't think the Democratic establishment likes him very much. And they're they're not going to go to that. They're not going to go to Bernie Sanders either. He has no credibility anymore, even with his base, because he sold out to the Democratic establishment. But even though he sold out, the Democratic establishment has no interest in giving him anything. They didn't give him a cabinet position. They didn't give him any any sort of position in the Democratic Party. They just... He just, for whatever reason, just told the Democrats that he was, or he just supported his good friend Joe Biden, lost all credibility with anybody that ever trusted him, and they still don't like him. They could have made him the Secretary of the Treasury, and they could have gotten him in a position where, even with how old he is, they could have put him in for 2024, but they're, they have no interest in doing that. Um, uncertainty about Biden's campaign has been an issue among Democrats for several months. I think that uncertainty about Biden's campaign has been an issue among Democrats since he announced his candidacy in 2018 or 2019. I mean, I don't even think he was, he was strong at the time. It's nonsense. Um, in addition to low polling, some of which puts Biden as the loser in a presidential rematch against former president Donald Trump, obviously, the lack of campaign staff and money raised since Biden's campaign announcement has worried Democrats. Who would want to be on that sinking ship? Who would want to be on the sinking ship of Biden? The man is clearly not in control. He's 80 years old. He's falling everywhere. Who would want to work for that? I mean, you can, whatever, you have your your freaking, your people that have no souls and they make billions of dollars, but you're not going to find grassroots people working for that unless they've really drank in the Kool-Aid. Um, however, CNN provided the perspective of those within Biden's circle who have scoffed at the idea that he will bow out of the race. The outlet stated it's a persistent sense that the inner circle of advisors to the president and several of the very few aides who have been hired for his reelection campaign dismiss as absurd. Of course he is running, they say. Of course they're taking preparations very seriously. Yeah, I bet you are. Because your jobs depend on him running. Of course you're going to have confidence in him. Of course you are. Ridiculous. Um, the article cited former Obama 2012 campaign manager Jim Messina, who said that Biden's people are so underestimated and they keep getting it right. What are they getting right? What the hell are they getting right? What are you talking about? I, the Obama 2012 campaign manager. I mean, if you're if you were voted for Obama in 2012, you would have seen 
all of the lies that he did in 2008. He didn't end the war in, I- in Afghanistan. He didn't end the war in Iraq. He just kept the war in Iraq and expanded Afghanistan. He didn't close Guantanamo Bay. Neither did Biden now. He hasn't done anything that he promised to do. Um, multiple big donors aren't locking in. Grassroots emails are sometimes bringing in just a few thousand dollars. <laughs> oh, my God. Um, the news site cited several anonymous senior Democratic advisors. I mean, I, I, how do you even confirm that? But regardless, who said they were concerned about the slow pace of the campaign. While all peppered their comments with respect and admiration for Biden's achievements, this is how rich people talk. They're essentially just lying. Um, they said they fear the campaign is not fully embracing the advantage he have he has as the Republicans fight their fight out their own primary. Um, <laughs> oh, whatever. One senior Democrat claimed it's a crapshoot this election, and when it's a crapshoot, you have to do everything possible. It cannot be done when the guy's eighty year old, eighty years old, and has his day job. Yeah. Um. Okay. So, I mean, I just don't think it's going to work for them. I, I think it's pretty pretty open and shut for the Republicans. Okay. I'm going to read these comments here, and then I'm going to take off. So, okay. In a country of 330 million, the best we have Biden versus Trump, too, really? Yeah. I mean, clearly that's not who the best we should have is. But I think that this is the inevitable result when all we have is Biden versus Trump. This is the result of us having a situation where Biden and Trump are, where the Republican, I'm sorry, the RNC and the DNC are both captured by uh, private interests. They're they're captured by corporate interests, and and both of these institutions, they they act in such a way that they don't let the real grassroots candidates come up because not only are they the primary voters are a specific type of person. And then the RNC and the DNC have ways of selecting the candidates that they want through the use of super delegates, uh, which is completely undemocratic, but it doesn't have to be democratic because these are private organizations before they get to the actual race. The, the primaries are, are private organizations. so They can kind of do whatever they want. They can be as sketchy as they want, but there's no legal protections for it because they're private organizations. So, they're in this situation where they just haven't given the real grassroots candidates, someone like Tulsi Gabbard um, or someone on the Republican side. Uh, I mean, who else would it possibly be? I mean, I mean, the Republicans have have better people, but they, they just don't they just don't put them up. Um, yeah, Craig. Craig, put me in, coach. Oh, yeah, you wanna you, you wanna be in the in the race. I, I I see you should be. I'd vote for you over over Trump or Biden or any of them, really. I would. Um, and Craig, I feel like we are getting closer to a banana republic every day. I think you're right, Craig. I think you really are. I mean, it's like banana republics were done by the United States into other countries, and what seems to be happening, and there's some evidence for this, uh, that. They took those same strategies that they had for, and by they, I mean the intelligence communities and, and the deep state, that they are taking those skills that they had for overthrowing democratically elected governments in Latin America, the Middle East, Asia, and uh, the Soviet bloc. And they are then taking those strategies and they're actually using them domestically. And, that, you know, that's a conspiracy theory. But I think there's some evidence for that. Um 
Yeah, thank you, Doug Dimidank, for uh, I thank you. I, I know it will pay off. Um, I, and I know, and I, I'm enjoying the process. I'm enjoying what I'm doing right now. So I'm going to, um, that's all for tonight. If you guys have any last questions, I'll hang on for about 30 more seconds. Um, but thank you for joining me tonight, guys. Craig, as always, I appreciate it. Uh, Doug, Kenny, Kenny, obviously, thank you so much. Thanks, Craig. You too. And yeah, I will, uh, I'll be back at home uh on monday so i'll be coming out with the anthropology of religion episode starting then um and then on this coming thursday i will have much better internet so that hopefully we can get some better uh better connection on the live show it'll be connected by ethernet with 800 megabytes upload speed hopefully so yeah have a good night craig thanks kenny i'll see you guys later um everybody have a good night thanks craig bye